Well, if you've got a Bible, we're going to 1 Peter chapter 2 today. Uh, 1 Peter, this book written by, by Peter who walked with Jesus uh, 30 years before he wrote us this book. Uh, one day in his early 30s, he went out to do his work as a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee, like he'd probably done six days a week since he was a teenager. But that day, everything changed. Uh, his whole life was different after this moment in Matthew 4.18 that says, while, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And so from that moment on, Peter's life and his his ambitions completely changed. Now he was beginning this totally different life of following Jesus. He hadn't seen it coming that morning at all, but Jesus came into his life, and in response to Jesus, he gave up all that he had to follow him. And while Jesus may not be calling most of us to give up our careers to follow him, when he comes into any life, that life has to be different than it would have been without Jesus. There are old ways that are left behind and a whole whole new way of life that begins. And so Peter writes this book to unpack for us the huge thing that it is to become a Christian and the massive impact that that should make on our lives. To become a Christian is to receive a huge gift from God. We were deserving of death and hell for our sin, but instead we got grace from God. God sent his son to die. He gave us the gift of faith so that we could be forgiven and released from our guilt and shame And the whole thing was planned by God for our good before the world began. And people who have received this massive gift of grace are like Peter out on the boat, where Jesus calls us to follow him, and and given the magnitude of who Jesus is and what he did in our lives, we drop those nets and we follow him. We can't be the same. So let's pray and ask him to continue to to change us as we study through this book. Uh, Father, you called us here to worship you to taste your goodness, to meet with you in the word. We know that to see you is to be transformed by you, so we pray that today you would give us eyes of faith to see you. We pray that today in your word that you would convict us of sin, that you'd give us a sense of our forgiveness as we confess those things to you and turn from those things. We pray that you'd comfort us and encourage us as as we open up the word and we see Jesus here. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our previous passage, Peter had said, having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. One of the primary ways that Christians are very different because Jesus has come into our lives is in our love for one another. And then in today's passage, Peter's going to continue that train of thought by unpacking for us more of what love looks like and more of what love doesn't look like. And then he'll give us more resources for us to grow in that love, and he'll remind us of what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is building in his church so that we can be people who work alongside of him instead of being people who work to tear down what he's building. So let's read our entire passage. It's 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So Peter has said that people who come to, to know Jesus are people who love. And in verse 1, he starts to list some things here that people who love don't do, or some of the sins that we strive to put off in the name of, of loving others. And so in, in verse 1, he says the five things that we're supposed to put away are malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And these are all sins that we commit against, uh, against one another, either in our hearts or with our lips or with our keyboards. And people who have received the grace of God are called to put all of these things off. When he says to, to put these things off or put these things away, that could be translated take off like you would take off a, a, some dirty clothing. That those are the old garments that you used to wear. And he says that people who have come to know Jesus are now robed in Jesus and they can no longer be clothed in malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Christians are distinct in that we don't clothe ourselves with the same behaviors that those who don't know Jesus clothe themselves with. But in our day, these sins are not only practiced, but they're celebrated. In fact, if I had to define what cancel culture is, I would say that it's a way of life aimed at destroying reputations by malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. These are the clothes that we wear in our day, particularly on social media. And this is a very normal posture, even for many professing Christians to have, and it can seem to be right, because usually the people who are doing the canceling, who are engaged in cancel culture, feel like their cause is just, and they feel like the ends justify the means. And so because this is the way of life out in the world, we can expect that at times it's going to get into the church. The church is like a boat out on the ocean, and it's not uncommon at all for the waves to break up over the deck of the ship and to, to swamp the ship a little bit. But as Christians who put on Christ, we're called to put off those former ways. And so Peter lists these five anti-love ways that we're supposed to take off and never put on, things that we're supposed to completely drop, and you can group them into sins of the heart and sins of the lips or of the keyboard. You can start with malice, which is a sin of the heart, where you have an evil posture toward others. You have a desire to hurt other people or nail other people or see harm come to other people. You scan for flaws in people so you can do some damage to them so that you can pounce on what's wrong in their lives. The book of Proverbs refers a few times to people who lie in wait for others. It's like they're waiting in the bushes, watching for people to pass by so they can do some harm to them. And that's what malice is. And Peter knows that he needs to remind these, these readers to put off malice because they're people under pressure. They're scattered in an empire that doesn't love them and doesn't love their God. They're being persecuted. There's all kinds of pressure that's coming against them. They're experiencing losses where they're losing land, they're losing businesses, they're losing the love and affection of family members. 
And when you live like that for a long time, it's very easy to be the kind of person who kind of likes to lash out and see something bad happen to someone else for a change. You know, for, for once, I'd just rather see life dump on somebody else that's not me. And so we can have that posture of malice where we almost enjoy it when we see somebody fall, when we see something bad happen to someone, when someone else is harmed. But Peter says, take that off. Don't wear that. Those aren't the clothes that people who have received grace wear. I mean, what would have happened if that was God's posture toward us? What if God was seeking to do harm? We, we would all be doomed because we all deserved whatever we had coming from him. But still, he gave us his grace. And you have Jesus who had every right to judge and condemn, but first, he came to redeem. John 3, 17, he said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus scanned for opportunities to save and to give life and to serve. He took the nails so that we could be forgiven and have our guilt completely lifted. Jesus loves to declare us righteous, but malice loves to declare people guilty. And while normal, normally people under pressure will scan for deficiencies in others to do them harm, people who have received grace should be eager to bless others. So he says, take off malice. Don't let our cold, hard, malicious world make you like it. Don't let the pressure cause you to enjoy seeing other people harmed. Let Jesus make you like him. Jesus gave his life so we could be forgiven. He didn't return evil for evil. He didn't return an eye for an eye. People who love are not malicious. They're not out to get others. And he also says to take off hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is a sin of the heart where you grow accustomed to acting contrary to your words because you want people to think that you're somebody that you're not. And this is mankind's default religion since the Garden of Eden, where I, I know I'm not who I should be, I know that I've sinned, I know that I've fallen, so I, I cover up. I cover up because I want to appear holy to people. And so I'll cover up with religious language, I'll cover up with, with church going, I'll cover up with self-righteousness and pretending, I'll cover up by attacking other people for their deficiencies to draw attention away from mine. I'll make myself out to be holy and righteous, and my concern is not that I would actually be holy, but just that I would appear holy to people. I don't really care if God thinks I'm holy, I just care if other people think I'm holy, and if they do, then that's enough, that's good. If I appear to be holy, then that's good enough. But we've come to believe the gospel. We've come to believe that the Son of God had to be crucified for our sin because, because our sin was so bad. And if that's the case, if we've had to admit that to become Christians, then we are totally free to just drop the act. We don't have to pretend anymore. We've admitted that we're sinners. We admitted we needed a savior. We've admitted that we're messes, so we don't have to pretend otherwise so that other people around us can think that we're holy. God has told us no one is righteous, not even one, and we've said that God is true. So we can drop the hypocrisy. And hypocrisy gets dropped not just by trying hard not to be hypocritical, but by believing what Christians say we believe. That my sin is so severe, and I am so helpless on my own, that I need a savior. Jesus already died for my sin. He's already provided the, the covering for my sin in his blood, so I can stop trying to provide an alternative to his righteousness with my own self-righteousness. If I'm robed in his righteousness, 
then I can take off my own. But hypocrites would rather be robed in lies. And those lies are less satisfying, they never last, but in the moment, it seems to work. So he says, take it off. Take off all malice. Take off hypocrisy. And he also says to take off envy. And envy is just not wanting others to be blessed or succeed and wanting that only for ourselves. It's a violation of the 10th commandment, where in Exodus 20, 17, God said, you shall not covet. And this is a sin of the heart, where because Jesus is not enough for us, because we're getting our identity from other things, we resent it when people have those things and we don't. And scripture says it rots us from the inside. Proverbs 14.30 says, A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy rots the bones. It rots our frame. It destroys us from the inside. And it can be a regular state of mind for us. It can drive a lot of the desires that we have to, to see others fall, but we can become so accustomed to just living in a state of envy that we don't even notice that we're doing it. So we have to stop and ask ourselves some questions. I mean, what is our attitude toward people that have more than us? What's your attitude towards someone with a better career? Towards someone who's smarter? What's your attitude toward people who seem to have better relationships than you have? Whose kids seem to be turning out better? Those people who have the family that we always wanted or the looks that we want? What's our attitude toward people who have the money and the houses and the cars? To make the questions harder, what's our attitude toward them when they didn't earn it at all? What's our attitude toward them when we actually believe that we're better people than they are, but they seem to have it so much easier, so much better, they have so much more? What's our attitude toward them when we've made all kinds of sacrifices and they haven't, but still they seem so blessed? Do we envy? I mean, can we honestly say that those things make us thankful for what God has given to others? Because they should. And, and it's fine if those things provoke us to imitate them gladly. That's not necessarily envy. That can be a good thing. But what we'll often do is we will criticize others when we see that they have something that we don't have. We'll call their achievements or their possessions wrong. We'll try to tear them down. We'll throw some shade or suspicion at, at the things that they have. We, we'll treat them like they're always just kind of suspect because they have those things. And it's so easy for us to think that way. I remember in the early days of our church, someone came in to meet with me because he was very concerned that somebody else in the church had, had purchased a house that he thought was too big. And, and I kind of engaged it. I was kind of new in ministry, didn't really know how human hearts worked very well at the time, still learning. And, uh, and I learned later that that same person who, who came to meet with me that day at the same time that he was coming to talk about those things was involved in some absolutely huge, like, marriage-wrecking sins. But he framed that whole meeting as a concern for righteousness. He just cared that, that people would do what's right. But in hindsight, he wasn't concerned for righteousness at all. He didn't give a rip about doing what was right. He envied what, what somebody else had, and he framed the whole thing as a religious concern. And I've since learned that this happens all the time. We envy, but then we, we don't want to admit to ourselves that we envy, so we wrap our envy in religion to make it seem right. Well, I just don't think a Christian should have a car like that. I don't think a Christian should live in a house like that. 
I don't know what Christians are doing going on vacations like that. Until at least I get the opportunity to do those things. <laughs> and then I'm all about grace and benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and, and God is good and it's good to enjoy his blessings. I'm just so glad he's given me these things. Hey, who am I to begrudge God of the joy that must come from giving me these things? We, we change our tune when, when the opportunity is ours. But just to, to help us guard our hearts, the concern about the blessings that others have is almost never righteous concern. It's almost always envy. Not, not always, but if it really is godly concern, then we bring it to them. We talk to that person directly. We sit with that person and say, hey, listen, seems like you used to talk a lot about Jesus, but now it seems like you're talking mostly about your stuff. I'm concerned about your heart here, but I want to hear you. Tell me what's going on. I, I could be wrong. Uh, we, we sit with them because we care for our brother and sister in Christ. That can happen. But usually our anger at the blessings of others is just pure envy, and it's not righteous, and it's not holy. Because remember, righteousness and holiness, those make us loving people. And people who love others don't envy. They're glad for the blessings that others have received. So Peter says, put it off. Put off malice and hypocrisy and envy, those common sins of the heart. And then he says to put off the sins of deceit and slander as well. And those are common sins of, of the lips or of the keyboard. And this is an area where I think we need to recover a sensitivity to sin. We need to recover some conviction. Because we can get really numb to these sins of the lips. I think especially if our lives are like a wash in social media where it seems like just about any type of speech seems like it's okay, seems like it's endorsed. Because the holy life that God calls us to is a life with very different use of the lips or the keyboard or the phone than the life lived apart from Jesus. Holy means that we're, we're distinct, we're different, we're separate. There should be a very separate and distinct way that we communicate. And God cares very much all throughout Scripture how we speak about others. I mean, this made the Ten Commandments too. In, in the Ninth Commandment, God commanded us not to bear false witness. He cares what we say. In the old um, Heidelberg Catechism, which was a series of questions and answers to teach the Christian faith, one of the questions is, what is required in the ninth commandment? And, and here's the answer. And as I read this, I just urge you to evaluate your own speech and your own use of social media in this light. So what's required in the ninth commandment? What's required in that commandment not to bear false witness? The answer is, I must not give false testimony about anyone twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard. Rather, I must avoid all lying and deceit as the devil's own works under penalty of God's heavy wrath. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. I mean, does that not sound like the polar opposite of cancel culture? So in this, the cancel culture that is malicious and loves to find fault, what would it look like for us to twist no one's words? To never twist anyone's words. 
probably one of the places where we experience this is when we have a, a loyal friend, where you, where you have a friend that you're loyal to and they're loyal to you, and that friendship has gone on for years, you can reach a point where you're very unguarded in your speech, where you feel like you can just kind of say what you're thinking, you can shoot from the hip, but this person's your friend, so they're going to interpret the things you say in the best possible light, they're going to overlook the, the little flubs and the little mistakes, they're, they're going to hear you out, they're not going to jump on every word, they're not going to be secretly recording this so that they can put it on Facebook later. Like, you're going to be able to have a good conversation with someone that you totally trust, and you trust their motives in hearing you. And, and you become someone who hears that friend in the same way. You trust their motives. You know that they're going to have bad days and they're going to have good days. You're not out to get them. You're not out to pounce. You're going to interpret what they say in the best possible light because they're your friend. We'll contrast that with a social media troll. And they open up the app with the intention of finding some speech to interpret in the worst possible light. And then they'll say, you meant the worst thing that you could have possibly meant. And even if you didn't think that you meant that, your speech still exposed that deep down, you're, you're a bad person. You may not have said something that, that was wrong, but the way you said it exposes that you're ignorant or you're evil or you're racist or you're sexist or any other number of labels. And then if you deny being those things, well, that's the evidence that you are those things. Because who would ever deny them unless they really were them? I mean, look how strongly you're denying being an alcoholic. You must be one. And that's a really far cry from twist no one's words. It's a really far cry from not joining and condemning someone rashly. And I think the danger is that social media just kind of reinforces this kind of ungenerous speech and ungenerous way of hearing speech where we, we look for the flaw in something that someone says, we pounce on it, we, we point it out, we use it to our advantage, and when we do call it out, then we get the likes and we get the resulting dopamine hit and we say, yeah, lots of people are on my side and we, we're trained to do more of the same. But we believe the gospel. Remember what Jesus did for us in the story of the gospel. He came to give undeserved grace to sinners. The, the God that we serve is a God who is eager to forgive. He's eager to cleanse. He's eager to restore relationships. He brings his enemies near. Jesus came to help bad people like us receive grace. He wasn't eager to make people worse than they were. Which means that in our speech and in our listening to people, we really need to recover the principle of charity. And it's, I'm using it here in, in the old way that it was used, where it doesn't mean giving money to something, but it means interpreting people in the best possible light. Uh, two non-Christian guys named Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote a book called Codd The Coddling of the American Mind, um, which is a really good book overall. And, and this is how they define that principle of charity. They say the principle of charity says that one should interpret other people's statements in their best, most reasonable form, not in the worst or most offensive way possible. It's interpreting a person's words how we would want our words to be interpreted. It's what love does. We don't twist words. We overlook minor offenses. We laugh off little things that would uh, offend us if we were oversensitive or proud. Proverbs 10:12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So when we listen to people or we read what they have to say, we're not looking for a weapon against people. We're overlooking as many minor flubs as we possibly can, and we're treating other people how we would want to be treated when we speak or when we write. 
Now that means at times we will ask for someone to clarify. We'll give someone a chance to restate things. We'll, we'll repeat to them, hey, I don't know if you really meant this. Seems like you're saying this. Is that the case? We'll, we'll, we'll definitely press on things and have real conversations with people. But as people who've received the grace of Jesus Christ, we should be gracious people. Gracious in our speech, gracious in what we write, and gracious in how we interpret the speech in the writing of other people. So what would it mean in cancel culture to not gossip or slander? Proverbs 10.18 says, the one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. And sometimes we have a hard time discerning, like, is this gossip? Is this the, the right kind of speech that, that I should be engaging in? Should I be sharing this information? And I think a good rule of thumb is to ask yourself, does this, question unif or does this speech unify or divide? Ask yourself that question before you, you say a thing. So, for example, let's say that you find out that, that a friend's child is using drugs. And you're wondering, like, so should I share this bad news with my friend? And, you know, it's kind of gossip. The child's not going to be there. They're gonna, it, this is going to happen behind their back. Well, in that case, you're going to the right authority, and you're going to that right authority with the hope of unifying people, of moving a parent toward a child, of helping, deal, helping a parent deal with a real problem. You're, you're dealing with the right person as you talk to them. You're not going and talking to your other friend about how that person's child is, is using drugs. You're talking to the person that this really matters to, and you're doing it to unify. But there are so many other times where we'll share information with other people, and the whole goal is to divide. The whole goal, goal is to separate two people from one another. And if we're speaking about someone in a way that divides our hearers from them, it's usually gossip, and it's usually wrong. To tell a story about someone that's going to make your friend look at them badly or think of them differently is divisive, and it's meant to harm. And scripture warns us about people who are always divisive in their speech. In Titus 3.10, it says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. And Christ took us, the, these people who were enemies of God, and with his death and resurrection, he reconciled us to the Father. And if our speech is shaped by the gospel, it'll be the kind of speech that brings people closer to one another, not the kind of speech that divides in most cases. And this verse says that we all have the responsibility to make sure that we're building a culture where divisive, slanderous speech isn't tolerated. He says to warn a divisive person a couple of times, but then put some distance between yourself and that person. It's a command not only to not gossip, but to help prevent it in your response to it. The church father, Tertullian, said, what a man should not say, he should not hear, which is a high standard for all of us. So we don't twist words, we don't gossip, we don't slander. And what would it mean in cancel culture for us to not condemn or to join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard? I mean, social media has opened the door for all of us to be busybodies and for all of us to jump on board condemning people. It's a place where people can be accused by someone and then tried by the Twitter jury, and, and, give, and we all have the opportunity to pile on these people who are accused of something without any firsthand knowledge of that situation or what those people actually did. And this is dangerous, because I think if people are like me, I know that my default mode is to, if I hear that somebody did something wrong, I immediately assume, assume that that news is true. Oh yeah, they did it. 
So if someone says someone did something wrong, that, that to me, in my mind, in my heart, can serve almost like proof, where, where the accusation equals guilt. But when we're going to believe that someone did something that would make us think less of them, God's standards actually require real proof. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, he said, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So God's law said that we don't condemn anyone based on the word of one accuser without proof. There needs to be proof to condemn. But so often we'll just assume that every accuser is in the right. And to pursue condemnation is right and good and moral and feels like the Christian thing to do. I mean, you notice this even when we think about attorneys. Like when we talk about like the, the criminal attorneys, a normal way we think about it is that the prosecuting attorney, that's the good guy. Like that's the person who is going after the crime, trying to wipe out the, the bad thing that's going on in society. And then we think of the defense attorney as the shady person. In fact, if I were to drop the name of, of some well-known defense attorneys in town, if you follow that kind of thing, a number of you would immediately say, oh, that guy, totally shady, always trying to get criminals off. But let's not think in, in such black and white terms about that. I mean, let's remember what type of attorney Jesus was for us. He was the defense attorney. He provides a defense for us against God's wrath, even though we're guilty, even though we're deserving of it, and let's not think that the moral and Christian person in that situation is always the one who's pursuing the person with like a Javert-like intensity to try to condemn. That's not always the right position to be in because Satan's name means accuser. In Revelation 12.10, it says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God. So Satan does traffic in false accusations. And day and night, he works to accuse falsely. And remember in scripture, Jesus was condemned by false accusers. So we should expect that we do have a real enemy who's going to sow lies about people and among the people of God. We'll, we'll believe these things, that this person thinks this about you. This person is not really authentic. This person's kids are actually really like this. This person actually believes this false thing. This person hasn't repented of this certain past. The lies can swirl all over the place, and we can believe that all accusations are true, even when we don't have proof. But knowing who Satan is and knowing the Christian story we have to be very careful and realize that false accusations can be a problem too. And if we don't have two or three witnesses, we are free to not condemn that person in our mind. So if someone tells you, oh, this person was talking trash about you, you're totally free to not believe that unless there's another witness that comes forward. Now, I do want to give one caution. Um, I think sometimes passages like this have been used to silence people who've been victims of crimes that nobody could see. Where, where there weren't two or three witnesses to the crime. I mean, crimes like sexual abuse that, that rarely happen in the presence of more than one witness. And so, so some people will hear this and they'll be afraid to bring an accusation to the authorities or even to discuss things with a friend because they, they don't want to gossip and there aren't witnesses and so they feel like they can't establish it and so they're, they're tempted to be very silent about things that have happened to them. 
But this passage doesn't say that you need two witnesses to bring an accusation. It just says that we can't establish guilt and condemn someone without it. And so sometimes when you bravely come forward to the police or to an authority, you'll find that others have too. And so a pattern gets established. Or sometimes there's other evidence so they can put together a case and that other evidence serves as another witness. So don't allow these verses to silence you or, or to and never listen to someone who's trying to use these words to silence someone who wants to bring an accusation of something that happened to them forward. You can go and tell people. You can tell parents or tell police or tell pastors or tell bosses about those sins that were committed against you, even if there was nobody else there to see it. So don't feel like you can't accuse accurately without two or three witnesses. But in our normal day-to-day -day situations, we would all do really well to treat people as innocent until proven guilty by two or three witnesses. But remember, we're, we're not only commanded to not do bad things with our words, we're commanded to build up with our words. And Jesus not only removed the wrong from us, but he gave us his right. And so our words are not only to be not deceptive and not destructive, they're to be constructive. We do what we can to defend and promote our neighbor's honor and reputation. We all have a, a responsibility to help protect the good name of another. And so we hear this, and if we evaluate ourselves, most of us would not say that we're doing a really great job when it comes to the way that we speak. So how does that change? Well, first of all, nothing gets better without confession and repentance. And so, so that's a good place to start. To start by confessing our sins to God and to those that we've wronged, to those that we've gossiped against, to those we've slandered. But there needs to be a, a better long-term strategy than just, okay, I've done it, I feel bad, I'm going to confess, I'm going to turn from it. If our long-term strategy is just that I'm going to try harder on the outside, we'll never be able to keep it up. I mean, yeah, in the moment of temptation, when we're tempted to lie, we're tempted to slander, do whatever's necessary to not do that thing. Force it, power through, do that hard thing. Tamp down that thought or that word that shouldn't be coming out of your mouth. But ultimately, nobody can keep that up in the long term. So we have to be changing internally. We have to have a different heart. The, the things that we say come from our heart. So how does our heart change? Well, Peter says in verse 2, like newborn infants... Long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter had said earlier that we were born again by, by the power of God. And so we've been born, we're like these little babies. And he says, like little babies, we should do the things that little babies do, and little babies long for milk. And that milk that he's referring to here is probably the word of God. In, in chapter 1, verse 23, he says, we were born again by the living and enduring word of God. It's the big power source that Peter's referring to here. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says to long for it, to crave it, like a baby craves milk, to be nourished by it. For us to, in the long term, have thoughts that are free from malice and envy and hypocrisy and lips that are free from, from deceit and slander, we have to have hearts nourished by the goodness of God in his word. In the Bible, we have this whole book that was given to us to point us to Jesus. And in the story of Jesus, you see his goodness to us again and again. 
from the very beginning. You see his goodness in creating us, then his goodness in dying for us, his goodness in adopting us as his children, his goodness in promising us a future, promising to be with us, sending his spirit to comfort us and be by our side. We read through scripture and we can't read that as Christians and not say the Lord is good. And if we're consistently drinking from the goodness of God in his word, finding our hope in God, finding our identity in being his children, finding our purpose and our sustenance in God, finding our hope for the future in God, if we keep drinking his goodness in all those ways in his word, then that'll change our hearts and it'll change our lips. I can stop finding my identity in what other people think of my phony religion or in being better than other people. I don't have to engage in malice to keep other people down because God's so good and gracious, I know that there's plenty to go around. I don't need to envy because in a kingdom supplied by a loving father, more for you doesn't mean less for me. There's plenty of love and grace to go around and I don't gain any of it by taking from others. So crave the goodness of God that you find in his word. It's by longing for his word that we grow up into the salvation that we have. My speech about others will change if I'm consistently in his word, drinking deeply of his goodness. And also, if I grasp what God is doing and bringing people to himself and building his church in that way, I won't want to do anything that tears down what God's building. Look at verses 4 through 8 again. He says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who who do not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So Peter says that when we come to Jesus, we're coming to the one who's like the cornerstone in a great building. Yeah, the world has rejected him and said that he's useless, but, but we see him as the cornerstone that all of life should be built on. And, and just like he's the cornerstone in the building, all of us are like stones in the wall that are built on top of that cornerstone. That he's the foundation and then we, we've all built our lives on him. We have all um, said that he's the, the anchor point of our lives. He's the most important thing. He's the most precious of all the stones. So we've built our lives on top of that. But we aren't just individually being built on Christ. We're being built in, into the walls of the house together. The stones are all connected. And if you decide to go to war against one of the stones, you're going to war against the whole wall in the whole house. I think over the last couple of years, any of us who are on social media have probably seen Christians be absolutely brutal to each other. Not just like disagree and discuss things publicly, but, but really be mean. I mean, about the election, about social issues about masks, about vaccines, any number of issues have come up this year. And, and there were times during the election especially where I saw people brutally attacking each other, even knowing that they were both going to be showing up to church here the next day and taking communion. Like I remember seeing that and thinking, God's going to kill somebody. Like, this is going to be bad. Like, this, what are we doing here? 
where Christians under pressure lashed out at each other, not just disagreeing on issues, but attacking and trolling and twisting each other's words and being willing to ruin the reputations of others just to win points on Facebook. And it's true that there are rare times when the way to handle a situation is with a, a public individual call out. But again, those are really rare. We're supposed to have a posture of guarding each other's reputation, of meeting face to face when we see a sin or a wrong and recognizing that we're so connected to one another that to attack one is to attack the whole house that Jesus is building. So Peter goes on and he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So look what he says about us. The Christians together are a new and chosen race of people. They're a priesthood that exists on earth for God's glory. They're a new nation. And how many of our conflicts come from, from seeing our being Christian as less important than our national politics, our race, the people that we think we're part of. We'll divide the body of Christ based on national politics and race, forgetting that we are a new nation, a new race, a new people. We'll forget that we together exist as a brand new community and, and a new people group altogether, that we exist together to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus. And think of how important this would be to the Christians that Peter was writing to. They're experiencing alienation from the culture around them, and I think we probably experience that to at least a lesser degree in our day. They've lost jobs. They've lost their, their sense that they're part of the Roman nation. They've lost family. They've lost community. But that, in part, is being remedied by this new community that God's building. Yes, you've lost your, your place among those people, but good news, God is building a new people. This was great news, that the church could be the community for those who had lost community. But think of what those five sins do, malice and slander and envy and hypocrisy and deceit. They ruin that new community that God's building. When we attack each other, it's like we, we put the ladder up on the branch and we're sawing off the branch that it's leaning against. The thing that we should be able to depend on is the, the thing that we're wrecking. So he's saying, put off all the sins that affect the community of the church. Don't think it's okay just because it's on Twitter or Facebook. That's not your avatar talking, that's you. So put off anything that would destroy what God's building. Remember the mercy that you've received in Jesus and extend that kind of mercy to other people. If grace doesn't make us gracious people, then we're not grasping grace. We've received a huge gift from God, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, fellowship with Jesus in the community of his church. And recognizing those things has to change our hearts and it has to change our speech. If we believe what's true, it'll make us very different people. So let's pray. Well, Father, as we come to your word, we taste again and again that you are a God of goodness. From the beginning of the Bible, when mankind fell into sin, you already began to promise a savior so that we could be recipients of your mercy and your goodness forever. You've pursued us with your love and grace. 
You gave us your son so that we could be forgiven. But in light of what your word says here today, we have to confess that we haven't reflected your love well. We'll deceive one another. We'll be hypocrites and be content to have people think that we're living holy lives when we know we're not. We aren't content with your love, so we envy others and we slander to punish them for receiving your good gifts. So Father, forgive us. And we're thankful for Jesus. Thank you that his perfect record of truth-telling and honesty and love for others is ours because of the exchange that was made on that cross. Thank you for the mercy that we've received from him, for the sins of our hearts and the sins of our lips. We needed a savior, and Jesus is that savior. We're so thankful. So Spirit, we pray that you continue to convict us of these sins, cause us to repent, Allow us to drink so fully of the goodness of God and his word that our craving for the, the blessings others have, our desire to harm others, our desire to wear false righteousness of hypocrisy, all dissolve. Help us to so cherish your people and the church that you're building that we wouldn't dare to tear them down. And help us to believe the promise that you've forgiven our sins and the sins of our friends around this room as we've confessed them to you. Help us to live free from the guilt that they brought about because you took the guilt. Help us to live free from suspicion and malice and envy, trusting that you are also at work in our brothers and sisters here to forgive and to cleanse and to strengthen and to grow. Help us to continue to desire your goodness in the word, to drink of your goodness in the word, and by it to grow in the salvation that you've given to us by your grace. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.